Among the things that people all over the world associate with Christmas is the music and the children. The American Nat King Cole croons in his the Christmas song, Everybody Knows That Some Turkey and Some Mistletoe Will Help to Make the Season Bright. With tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. Or the German Joseph Moore wrote of a silent night, holy night, where all was calm and all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child. This morning we even sang a lovely Polish Christmas carol centered on the infant holy, infant lowly. All over the world, people associate Christmas with music and children. And in particular, one child. For the next three Sundays, I want us to listen to three Christmas carols, in a sense, from the Bible that focus on a baby boy. All three passages show up in the first half of the Christian Bible, and they make their way into the music of today. These three passages form what some have called the Emmanuel Trilogy. And they're all found in the book of Isaiah. Would you please locate the book of Isaiah in part one of the Christian Bible, the Old Testament? Recently, we looked at the message of Isaiah over two sermons. The book of Isaiah was written roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ, the child who is the Lord of all the revelry at Christmas. We took as our one sentence summary that we discovered from Isaiah, the prophet, that he shows us the God who saves his people from judgment through a suffering servant king who makes all things new. And the great surprise of the book is how God will save his people from judgment. A suffering servant king, but where does that suffering servant king begin? You know, I'm not an expert on DC and the Marvel Universe. Some of you I know are. But I know that when the universe of DC and Marvel want to save the planet, they send muscular adults with superhuman powers like Wonder Woman and Thor, Iron Man and the She-Hulk. They deliver through power. But when God wants to save sinners, he sends a baby. And the weakness of a baby, not a two-year-old, not a three-year-old who can run away from you, but in the weakness of a baby, a newborn baby, God would come to man. God would save not through power, but through death. That's the surprise. The great surprise of Christmas. Christmas is the end of thinking that you are okay And the start of realizing that you need to be saved. That's the heart of Christmas. We have four Gospels that open the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The word gospel refers to good news. That good news involves the birth of Christ, though it doesn't terminate with that. Well, scholars have long called this book of Isaiah, we're now looking for the next three weeks, have called Isaiah the fifth gospel. Because this book gives us a preview of the person and work of Christ before his birth. So for the next three Sundays, we're going to spend Christmas with Isaiah. Advent in Isaiah. This week, we'll look at Isaiah 7. Next week, Isaiah 9. Then Lord week, Lord willing, Isaiah 11, all making up a part of this Emmanuel trilogy. And Isaiah 7, we're going to hear a miraculous birth announcement that's still explained away to this day. Isaiah 9, we'll hear that this this baby boy Born miraculously, we'll hear of this baby boy's divine character and job description. And then in Isaiah 11, we'll hear of this baby boy's kingly 
ministry, his miraculous birth, his divine character, and his kingly ministry, all previewing the work of Christ. Now, context is always crucial and determinative. And these three texts, Isaiah 9, 7, 9, 11, as well as the chapters between them, have to be heard together like the notes in your favorite Christmas song. We often hear texts like this in isolation, but when you hear them together, they press upon us the supernatural nature of Christmas. They press upon us the person of Christ, his work, and they force us to a decision. Everybody who was first greeted with the news of Christmas was deeply disturbed. It was confusing and disturbing before it was ever comforting. That's what these passages do for us. And all the people who first heard Christmas then were confronted with this choice that we face too. They were confronted with a choice of trusting the Lord of heaven or a choice of self-reliance. And that confrontation will come at us as we look at Isaiah 7 this morning. Isaiah 7 is a sign of God's presence or the present of God's presence. The sign will shake us or it will settle us. Before we begin to read Isaiah 7, I want to lay some layers of context. In addition to the near literary context of this Emmanuel trilogy, Isaiah 7 forms the third panel of what I'll call a triptych. Uh, but some of you teach art. I, I'm, I'm over my head in this, but what's a triptych? It's a three-paneled piece of art that folds in three panels. Well, chapters 1 to 11 are Isaiah's large triptych. Chapters 1 to 5 form the first panel, one largely of dark, ominous judgment. Chapters 7 to 12 form the third panel, one largely of a call to trust in the midst of judgment. And the center panel, which is usually the biggest, is the holy and august throne room of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees that even though King Uzziah has died, the Holy One remains high and lifted up, holy, holy, holy. Thus, this three-panel triptych of Isaiah 1 to 11, this literary strategy that, that Isaiah employs with the Holy One of Israel in the middle called Israel then and us today, it calls us to turn from living life our own way of looking within to ourselves or without to other people to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from others and to turn and trust the Holy One of Israel alone. The question of Isaiah is simply this. Who or what will you trust to deliver you? What are you looking to to justify your life this morning? Isaiah 7 opens with another king, a son of Uzziah, atop the throne. But he sits there very uneasy. King Ahaz, as the head of the southern kingdom, faces a choice of whether or not he will rely on God or he will put his trust in shrewd political alliances. And we're not unlike Ahaz. There's always something or someone in our life appealing to us to trust in two ways. Either instead of God, or most of us are too smart for that, so appealing to us to trust something just in addition to God. Where is your trust? Who will you trust? That's the immediate context that Ahaz faces, the crisis he comes to. These are dark and threatening days for Judah and King Ahaz. The nation is a long way removed since the golden days of King David. 
David had ruled as God's chosen king over united kingdom and the magisterial promises of 2 Samuel 7. God promised that David's kingdom would never end, that he'd never lack one of his heirs to sit on the throne who would reign forever. But by the time of David's grandsons, his once united kingdom has been split in two like a dried piece of firewood. Israel is the northern kingdom, often referred to as Ephraim, as Ephraim is the chief tribe, and Judah is the southern kingdom. More importantly, the southern kingdom of Judah represents the chosen line of David. Thus, King Ahaz, as chapter 7 opens, is not the only one in danger of death. The line of David is as well. And if David's line goes, so do God's promises. That's the setting as chapter 7 opens. King Ahaz faces an impossible situation. An impossible situation that we'll see will give way to an impossible sign. Well, let's read of this impossible situation that Ahaz faces. He's bracing for an invasion. Isaiah 7, this is what Holy Scripture says. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is now in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This is the word of the Lord. What's happening here is known in history as the Syro-Ephraimite War. A nation of Assyria whose brutal and rapacious tactics mirror those of modern day Hamas are too great a nation to be reckoned with. So Syria now has made an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria have formed a coalition to resist Assyria. King Ahaz has refused to join them to this point. Instead, he's already making overtures to link forces with, of all people, the Assyrians themselves. What you need to keep in mind is that King Ahaz, as the story unfolds, is not a hapless, innocent king. His overtures to the Assyrians are part of the problem, as we'll see. It may be a wise political move for Ahaz to parlay with the Assyrians, but spiritually, Ahaz is about to reap a whirlwind. All this, then, is what's known in history as the Syrian-Ephraimite War. Now, in payback for Ahaz's recalcitrance to unite against Assyria, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria have marched out together in full force. They're just miles away now from sacking Jerusalem. Their desire is to depose Ahaz, replace him with another king, uh, the son of Tibal and thus gain access to Judah's military, the land and weaponry. Listen to their war room plans. You're in Isaiah 7. Look down at verses 5 and 6. Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah, Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. These threats, then, are not simply those of a, of a schoolyard bully. He's not just facing uh, being fired from a job or failing a test as threatening as those can be. He's staring down death. Death not only for himself, but all of his family members and the citizens who are under his care. It's a frightening scenario indeed. A tremendous weight to carry as a leader. No wonder verse 2 says, 
the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He faces an impossible situation. Whom will Ahaz trust? What will he do? Now, we need to know that at this point, although Ahaz is a descendant from King David, he is no King David in character. The record in 2 Chronicles 28, the historian tells us that Ahaz made idols, that Ahaz actually killed and sacrificed his own sons in the fire and engaged in other detestable practices. So bear in mind then that Ahaz is a king who neither worshipped God or deserved God's mercy. Well, the action starts to rise. Now that Ahaz is faced with this impossible situation, what will he do? Let's read now verses 3 to 9 to hear Ahaz's response to the impossible situation. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ar Yashub, your son. And at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, there you'll find him and say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord your God to their plans. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is the Lord's word. This impossible situation of verses 1 and 2 is now met with a call to trust. Verses 3 to 9. As mentioned already, Ahaz is a king who neither worshipped God nor deserved his mercy. But did you notice, friends, that out of mercy, arising from God's faithfulness to his promises to David, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to encourage this king to trust the Lord for a final time. God is the one who sends Isaiah to track down a hard-hearted Ahaz. God always takes the initiative. He always takes the first step in the dance and the drama of redemption. He comes to seek and to save. And Isaiah finds the king, verse 3, checking out his water supply. Now, at one level, this is a reasonable move by a king who's preparing for an incoming invasion. The tactics of seas warfare were of such that, that, that they surround the city, and if they can cut off your food and water supply, you'll say, Uncle Faster, and give up. Well, Ahaz wants to make sure that his water supply is secure, fresh, and stable. The longer he has access to the water, the longer he can hold out. It makes sense at one level. But on another level, if you contrast Isaiah's response with Hezekiah's response in chapter 37 and 38, when Hezekiah faces a similar impossible invasion, 
His first move in the biblical record is not to check out his water supply and devise a military plan. Hezekiah's first step is to go into the temple, fall on his face and pray. There's a contrast being introduced between Ahaz and Hezekiah that presses upon us as well. What is it? Well, what is our first move when faced with a choice to trust in a moment of crisis? Whatever our first step is, probably reveals what we trust the most. And we may not realize it until the test comes. Of course, the choices of Ahaz and Hezekiah individually are are, are not just one-off occasions, but as their respective stories unfold, the way they respond to this crisis reveals a pattern in their life, a trajectory. This is just what Ahaz does. He gets to work figuring it out. This is just what Hezekiah does. He falls on his face and he prays. Your first step in the crisis of any kind reveals what you're really trusting. Regardless, God is gracious to Ahaz. He sends the faithful Isaiah to steal his kingly backbone, to whisper courage in his ear, to prompt him to faith. God is giving more grace to an undeserving Ahaz. You know, friends, when you and I stand before the Lord and we will all stand before the Lord and when you do, you will be alone. And when you stand before the Lord alone and the books are open, the responses of any witnesses who will be there will not be, I can't believe God is judging her. The responses will be, I cannot believe God waited so long to judge her. God is just. But he's also merciful to Ahaz. He sends him Isaiah. Another chance. Another heaping helping of God's mercy to trust him. And Isaiah has not come alone. Did you miss it? I kind of missed that this week. Going through the text slowly, he's brought a son with him. Did you see his name in verse 3? Take Sha'ar Yashub, your son with you. That's Isaiah's son. This is the first of three sons that appears in chapters 7 and 8. And the first of four references to a son in chapters 7 to 11. The first son here is no doubt Isaiah's. In chapter 8, God tells Isaiah and his wife to have another son. That son, too, has a symbolic nickname. You can see his name. You can turn over to chapter 8 and verse 3. And according to chapter 8 and verse 3, they shall call that son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. His mom had fun calling him to dinner. Indeed. Now, these are not normal names even for the day. But Isaiah's boys and their names mean something. As for Maher, Shalal Hashbaz, his name means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. His name pictures an army taking the spoils of war with speed, an animal hunting its inevitable prey with haste. It's intended to show the foolishness of trusting anyone else but the Lord as judgment is coming on you. Judah's enemies will be destroyed and God can be trusted even when he comes in judgment. As for the son's first name in chapter 7, whom Isaiah brings along with him, God says, take your son along with you to meet Ahaz, and they meet up at the water supply. I don't know how it went, but maybe Ahaz says, oh, Isaiah, what are you doing here? And Isaiah shoots back, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Yes, and who's this you brought with you? Well, this is my son. Sha'ar Yeshub, Isaiah says. Well, now that's a funny name for a king, Ahaz says back. 
Yes, but you know, O king, his name means a remnant shall return. So standing before a king, wondering if the house of David will survive, if God's promise will remain, is a son who carries the promise of a remnant remaining and returning. And if a remnant returns, it means not all will be lost. There may indeed come a point of bad news indeed. But however dark, here's a son who's telling you, Ahaz, a remnant will. God told me to bring him with you, me with him. He wants you to know a remnant will return. Here's my son. So here's God provoking King Ahaz to faith with a son, a son whose name and presence is meant to encourage Ahaz to trust the Lord. In addition to the presence of the son, Isaiah's words provoke Ahaz to faith, too. First, he says, let me tell you about who you are afraid of. As for the king of Israel and Syria, they're no more than two smoldering pieces of firewood. They look mighty, but they're like the log that's burned all night and you wake up the next morning and it's about to go. just spit on it and it'll go out. This morning we tried to light this candle. We lit it and it went out. We lit it and it went out. We lit it and it went out. And finally, it's lit and it's legit. But the point is that early on, we lit it and it went out. And God is saying, they're about to go out. They're on their way out. So Isaiah's son encourages faith. The description of those kings as burned out pieces of wood encourages trust. Don't fear them. And then Isaiah announces in verses seven to eight, besides, you're looking to you're being tempted to trust other alliances. I'm telling you, in 65 years time, judgment will fall on that alliance in Syria and it will not stand. Thus, however tempting and enticing, however desperate you are in appealing and alluring it is at this moment of crisis to put your trust in something that you can see. Don't do it. For very soon, they will be no more. A remnant will return. What you need to do is be careful and do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. And after all these enticements to trust, Isaiah implores Ahaz to trust the Lord for a final time. Look at the end of verse 9 again. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Or one translation puts it like this. If your faith does not remain firm, you will not remain secure. In other words, it's a call to trust the Holy One of Israel from chapter 6. Trust the one who is holy, holy, holy. And it's more than a call for Ahaz to trust. Because remember, I mean, for Ahaz alone, because verse 2 says, the heart of Ahaz and all the people shook as trees. So if you look at again in the end of verse 9, you can't see in English. But if you were from Brooklyn, like my friend who passes there, you might say, if you's guys are not firm in the faith, or if y'all are not firm in the it's plural. He's now speaking to the nation. This is a national problem. If you all are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Through Isaiah and speaking to the head of the house of David, God is summoning the entire nation to put their trust in him and not be afraid. You see, the heart of all Israel's sins is this fundamental question of who will you trust? And the heart of all our sin is the same. Unbelief is at the heart of every sin. 
and the worst sin. Will you trust God and his word or not? If your faith does not remain firm, you will not remain secure. But the opposite means this. If your faith remains firmly in the Lord, you will remain secure. So what will Ahaz do with this impossible situation after he's been goaded now to trust in the Lord through this invitation? Well, the Lord has one more thing to offer this king, and it's a remarkable thing in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Again. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. I don't know if it works like this. There's no mention of a, of a time delay between here, but it could be something. This is my It could be again. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, meaning you're having problems believing me. I get that. So let me tell you something else. Verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, ask the Lord for whatever colossal sign of confirmation that you need. It's essentially a blank check given from an omnipotent God. I don't know. Ask for what? Ask for the moon to be turned to blue cheese. I don't care what it is. Make it as difficult as you want. As high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. In other words, the Lord is inviting Ahaz to ask the Lord to do something extraordinary. Ask for the most miraculous thing you can think of. A sign as high as heaven, as deep as the dead. A sign that you can trust me to deliver my people. Ask for it. Whatever you want. Make it big. So now we really are at the highest point of tension in the story because now faced with an impossible situation, given a blank check offer from the Holy One of Israel, what will Ahaz do with the word of the Lord? Will he take up the Lord's offer? Friends, that's the question that comes to us at every moment of our life, ordinary life or moments of crisis. We are always actors and part of a larger story. What part will you play as you leave this building this morning? Where will your trust be as you get in the car, as you open the email, as your marriage takes a a, a southward dive? Where will your trust be? Where will your first step be? Will you trust the word of the Lord? Be careful. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. If your faith does not remain firm, you will not remain secure. Trust the holy, holy, holy one. But what does Ahaz do in this moment of crisis? Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, set this in context. It's one thing for one of my children to say to the other child, you need to pick up your room and come to dinner. It's another thing if I say to one of my children, you need to pick up your room and come to dinner. What's happened here? The Holy One of Israel has commanded the king of Ahaz to ask for a sign. He doesn't say, if you think it's a good idea, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, no. This isn't humility. This is bald arrogance. No. Why do you call me Lord 
and don't do the things that I say. This isn't humility. We often clothe our disobedience in kind of pious rhetoric, all with kinds of excuses. Oh, I, I can't do that. I, I can't show up here. I, I, it's really not my place. I, I mean, I mean, you don't know how hard it is for me. Baloney. You just said no to a clear command of God. Is there a clear command of God in your life right now you are saying no to, offering multiple excuses to? It is not pious. It is not spiritual. It is blatant, rebellious disobedience. And Ahaz as the king is symbolizing how the entire nation is treating God. Ask me anything and I'll do it. No. Listen to what's really going on. You want to know what's really going on in Ahaz's heart? You could read this and think, well, well, we're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. I mean, but really, remember, this is not a good dude. But let me tell you what's really going on. Second Kings 16, 7 to 9. This passage is showing us that instead of turning to the Lord, taking the Holy One Israel up on his offer, Ahaz was turning to Assyria instead. Listen to this. So Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he sent them as a present to the king of Assyria, bribe money to say, please take care of me. And the king of Assyria listened to him, and basically he biffed the two kings. Ahaz is not only rejecting God, he's in bed with Assyria at the same time. No wonder Isaiah begins his book saying, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. He's responded to an impossible situation with stunning arrogance and unbelievable faithlessness. Ask of me a miraculous sign. No, thank you. By the way, I'm already talking to Assyria about helping me. That's the dark side of our sin and unbelief. And it's within us all. No, thank you, God. I'd rather work with Assyria. So what will God do now for a nation whose king faced an impossible situation with stunning arrogance and unbelievable faithlessness? Now we move into the impossible sign. Let's read verses 13 to 17 And as we do, we will hear some of the most precious promises in the Bible given to an undeserved nation, an impossible sign. And he said, here then, no longer Ahaz, here then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, in a manner of years, the land whose king you dread will be deserted. In fact, the Lord will bring upon you and your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The king of Assyria is coming upon you. Remember what's happened. Isaiah told Ahaz that all the plans to conquer him in the near future will fail if he trusts the Lord. 
That's the point of verses 3 to 9. Then the Lord commands Ahaz, go ahead and ask for a spectacular sign, which Ahaz refuses. And when Ahaz rejects the offer of a confirming sign, writes one author, he proves himself as one wholly without faith and thus unable to grasp the importance of any future promise. At this point on, I don't care how Isaiah is going to respond to the sign. You blew it already. You showed you had no faith when I came to you. So if you come to this text, well, how did Isaiah take it? I don't care how he takes it anymore. It doesn't matter. That's now not the point. The dual purpose of this sign was to was to measure and confirm Ahaz's faith, but he had failed miserably. And that's why now he switches no longer to you, Ahaz, but oh, house of David now. And now notice this chilling switch in, in pronouns. Isaiah says in verse 13, he says, is it a little thing that you have wearied? He doesn't say that you've wearied your God. You have wearied my God. It's a chilling revelation of where Ahaz now stands, having rejected the offer of God's grace and promise. Bereft of faith. No true relationship with the Yahweh at all. And with these words of promise now, God gives two promises. One promise is that now Ahaz and his kingdom will be judged for their unbelief. That's what he promises in verse 17. And it's worse than Ahaz could have imagined. I'm going to bring upon you and Judah everything that you feared and more because the various Syrians that you're in league with are going to rise up and destroy you. In all reality... I'm sure that's what Isaiah Ahaz was saying as well. I don't get anything you're talking about. One writer notes, what's coming upon Jerusalem now is the awful thunder of war chariots and whatever a man trusts in the place of God will one day devour him. King Ahaz thought he had it all figured out. You know, he he met with his elders and had a strategic plan. He'd met with his business coach and his team. He, he, he had his alliance with Assyria. It all looked so wise. But due to unbelief, Ahaz had managed to turn an immediate crisis into a slowly unfolding disaster of historic proportions. He had sowed to the wind. Now he was going to reap the whirlwind. And God had just rejected Ahaz. That's one thing God does with his promise. But the second thing God does is he says, even though Ahaz will fall and we're all going to go into exile, I'm not going to abandon my promise to the house of David. In fact, the Lord himself will give you house of David a sign that I will deliver my people. What's happening now in the flow is the Lord himself now says, I'm going to answer the supernatural challenge that I threw down. I ask for a sign as high as heaven, as deep as Sheol. Now let me give you a sign, a spectacular sign, a miraculous sign. And this sign is going to demonstrate that even though Assyria will overtake Ahaz, the line of David will not be wiped out. So in verse 14, the Lord pivots from talking to Ahaz and speaks now to the entire house of David. When he says the Lord will give you a sign, he means, oh, you house of David who weary me, I'm now going to give you a sign. And what is the sign? Now, we we read it. We know it. But before we look at the sign in detail, you need to know that signs in the Bible can function in one of two ways. This will help. 
sometimes a sign is a present persuader. God gives a sign in the relative present to confirm his power and faithfulness so that you'll trust him. So the plagues in Egypt were signs that functioned as present persuaders. One might also think of Gideon's fleece. Wet or dry was a present persuader that God was with him. Later, uh, God turns the sundial back for Hezekiah. It was a present persuader. But not all signs are present persuaders. Some signs are for the far-off future and will serve as after-the-fact confirmation. Such a sign would function, as one writer says, as a divine, I told you it was going to happen. So God told Moses that one day you're going to take the newly redeemed people from Exodus. Never mind they're in bondage yet. But when they come from Exodus and you cross the Red Sea, when you come to this mountain and worship me, that will be a sign I told you it was going to happen. It was a future sign and after the fact confirmation. Or think of the Christmas story. The angel tells the shepherds, unto you has been born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, we're out in the field. We're not near Bethlehem. Okay, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign that what I told you is true. I'm going to give you a future sign that will serve as a divine I told you so. And this will be a sign for you. When you find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, then you'll know I told you so he's here. You see, some function as a present persuader, some function in the future as an after-the-fact confirmation. I think you've got both functioning here. Before verse 14, the Lord had offered Ahaz a sign as a present persuader. I'll do something right now for you. And he rejected it. But now in verse 14, the Lord promises a future sign to all the house of David. A sign that would serve in the future as an after-the-fact confirmation. Here's what's going to happen in the future. Somebody's going to bear a son. Now, unlike like many future signs, these prophetic promises are spoken of at the same time while it's in the future as if it's already happening. So what's happening is that the Lord promises that he's going to, to meet their initial challenge with something supernatural as high as heaven is Sheol. And now in verse 14, I'm going to give you this supernatural sign that will function as an after the fact divine. I told you so. And it begins with a behold. We don't talk that way. You say, check this out. Listen, stop what you're doing and come in here and watch this. Behold, that's what Isaiah says. I'm going to give you a sign that's spectacular and I want you to put everything down. Behold. You're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. What is it? A virgin shall conceive. No, wait a minute. He has a specific person in mind. He says, the virgin shall conceive. Second, something unheard of is happening. This virgin is conceiving, or literally the Hebrew is a birth giving virgin, as if the virgin is about to give birth at any moment. Thus, this future sign is so certain that the Lord speaks of it as it's already in the process. Now, there's much discussion. Now, you know, you know how you know this is such a spectacular sign? Because people who read the Bible today say that could never happen. That could never happen. I told you to ask for a spectacular sign and I gave you one and you go, that could never happen. You will not be convinced even if somebody rose from the dead that's the hard heart of unbelief. There is much discussion of whether or not the virgin here in the original text actually means virgin. One argument is there's another Hebrew word that does appear to be more technical word for sexual purity. And Isaiah doesn't use that word. That is true to a point. 
Isaiah does use a word nonetheless that nearly always implies sexual purity. So you might hear, he does refer to a word that refers to a young woman of marriageable age. But while he does that, every young Hebrew woman of marriageable age in that day would have assumed to be what? A virgin. In other words, it would be axiomatic in Hebrew society that such a young woman would be a virgin. Of course she's a young woman of variable age who's sexually pure. Of course! That's the cultural context. If you trace down the seven or so uses of this word in the Old Testament that Isaiah uses, Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, they nearly all clearly presuppose a young woman who is a virgin. And while the sexual morality of the young woman is not always directly in focus in the context, in no text is the purity ever in question. So while the word itself may refer to a young woman of marriageable age, the cultural context and the uses of this word always assume the purity of the young girl. And when a very early translation of the Hebrew and the Greek comes along, about 200 years before Christ, people who knew the Hebrew better than you and I did and how the Greek worked, those translators used a Greek term that clearly meant virgin. So Isaiah is using a word that presupposes this young woman's sexual purity. And think about it for a moment. Now think about the context. Add this to determine what's really going on. Beyond the world itself, the word itself, the Lord has promised a supernatural heaven as high as heaven, as deep as the dead. So now why would the Lord be telling people to stop and behold a married woman being given birth? If that's all that's happening, that much of it, that's not much of a supernatural sign. That's rather commonplace. I think those who first heard this when Siri said, I don't understand what you're saying. I think they heard young woman of marriageable age and that means she's a virgin. They said, I don't understand what you're saying because that sounds an awful lot like a virgin, but that's impossible. And the Lord said, I told you I was giving you a sign that was miraculous. A virgin will conceive. But without any pun, a virgin conceiving is inconceivable. That's impossible. That's the point. I told you to ask for something miraculous to show you that I would deliver my people. A spectacular sign, a supernatural sign, proof, proof that neither Ahaz nor Assyria nor any other power can stop me for providing a deliverer through David's line. Nobody will stop my plans. Prove it to me. Behold, a virgin, the virgin is about to give birth. You want to laugh at this? This is true. Are you want to cry like, really? Or maybe you just walk away and say, that's nonsense. At this point, the house of David, though, has all that they need. Here's a future promise from God of a supernatural deliverance. And you want to say, can it be the Lord would really do that? A sign? A conception by a virgin through the line of David? But the Lord doesn't stop there. That would be enough. The Lord says, she will have an infant, and this infant will be a son. And in, in, in this very moment where the Lord just rejected Ahaz as the king on David's throne, could this son also be a king in the house of David too? I mean, if God's promise, if he's promising to keep the house of David alive, that one day a remnant will return, could this virgin-born son be the way that God keeps the house alive? Oh, read it again. Is that what Isaiah meant? Search the scriptures. That's what is this what he meant? Is he really saying what he's saying? 
And then if we're still in doubt about the supernatural nature of this promise sign to come, this son will be called Emmanuel, which every Hebrew person would translate with us, God, God with us. If we're any doubt, this is God with us. Have, have you ever? I know you have. You, you walk into cold water in the pool or cold water at the ocean. I know you try not to, but sometimes you don't know it was cold. And so you walk into the cold water. And as you're getting used to it, the deeper you get, every new step, <laughs> it takes your breath away. That's what happens with every line of this promise. Every line of verse 14 takes your breath away. One after the other. A virgin conceiving. A son who might be in David's line. And a son who's God with us. The main focus then in the days and years to come will not primarily be on the identity of the virgin giving birth. As remarkable as that is, the real focus will be who is that boy? Who is that child? Where is that baby boy? Who is the son who will be called God with us? That's the question they started asking right away. Who and where? And some people think in the very next chapter, Isaiah's wife gives birth to a son and the name Emmanuel appears again. And that birth is described in very similar ways to this prophecy. Could Isaiah's son be that son? This son? You could see them thinking that. But then they'd go back and they'd read and they think. But the problem is Isaiah's wife has already had a child in chapter 7. So she in chapter 8, she's not a virgin giving birth, so it can't be her. And then Isaiah sees a day promised to that the Emmanuel of chapter 7 is going to possess all the land. Oh, Emmanuel, this land will be yours, chapter 8, verse 8. And he's going to shatter all his opponents and it will be said, God is with us. Then as chapter 9 opens, the promised Emmanuel appears as a light to the Gentiles with a son whose title includes this, Mighty God. The promise of Isaiah 7 then has to be read as a unit. Chapters 8 and 9, each chapter underlining, unfolding, lo, how a rose air blooming. Yes, there's this bloom of revelation, this bloom of progress to fulfillment. It's all unfolding. It's all unfolding from chapter 7 and 8 and 9, each telling you, underlining who this son is, what he will do. It's a divine I told you so when it finally comes to pass. Fully human, a baby boy, fully God, The mighty God who's with us. Not a God mediated by the prophets. Not a God seen through the pillar and the smoke of the tabernacle. Not a God who's seen by the temple itself. Not a God even at his word as wonderful as all those things are. But here's a promise that God himself will be with us in a body. Not even Adam and Eve enjoyed such an incarnational fullness and presence of God as this promises. God was indeed going to reverse the curse, make our enjoyment of God even better. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and God will be with you. Well, in due course, both Israel and Judah fall first to Assyria and then to Babylon. David's crown, of course, rolls into the dust. The Holy of Holies is ransacked. Its treasures are set up in pagan temples and God's people are carried away like a sack of potatoes at a farmer's market. 
The Babylonian Empire, who took them captive, gives way to the Persian Empire. And Cyrus, whom Isaiah foresaw 150 years before he was born, Cyrus says, let God's people go back home. But when they get back home, there's no throne. There's no David. There's no king at all. They make a return to Jerusalem under Nehemiah and Ezra, and they rebuild the city and they rebuild the temple. But nothing is like that first time, because some of the old timers, when they finally see the temple built and the walls constructed, they start to cry, saying, this is not what it used to be. Then Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire takes the world stage. They build their Greek Parthenons wherever they go. And 200 years before the birth of Christ, someone makes a Greek translation of that Hebrew Bible. They translate some obscure 500-year-old promise from Isaiah 7:14 with the word Parthenos, meaning virgin. And ever since Assyrian Babylon, Israel has been handed off from one world empire to the next. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now the mighty Rome struts the stage. Israel's back in their homeland still, but they remain under the boot of Rome, heavily oppressed and heavily taxed. They're in exile, now not in another land. They're in exile in their own homeland. And besides all this, it's been some 700 years since the promise that God made to the house of David. And then a man named Joseph wakes up in a nightmare. Things were going so well for him. He's betrothed to a bride legally, and then he finds out his legally betrothed bride is pregnant before they'd ever come together. Mary herself is frightened and confused. She must have seemed out of her mind when she explained to people, I can't be pregnant, I've never known a man. Either Joseph and Mary were lying, or Mary's lying. Either way, there were one of two options you could go. You could end in death or you could have a quiet divorce. Joseph's deeply disturbed, too, and he's all alone. David, like uh, David, Joseph, like Ahaz before him, is now faced with an impossible situation, living under the tyranny of a foreign power, and his marriage is a mess. He falls asleep to get away from it all. I can't fall asleep when I'm stressed. I know some of you told me that you can Maybe that's what happened to Joseph. I got to get out of the only way I know I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to get he goes to sleep and an angel shows up at him. And an angel appears to him in a dream. And the angel addresses him with words that no one has used for a really long time. Joseph, son of David. No one's talked like that for a long time. You're calling me a son of David. It's like calling a now I hear you're a descendant of George Washington doesn't get me anywhere today. Joseph, son of David. And into Joseph's impossible situation now comes an invitation to trust. Ahaz was a son of David. Joseph is a son of David. And now he's given the same message with very similar words. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary for what's conceived in hers from the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure, I don't know, I'm Joseph said, I thought you said don't be afraid. You just said that what she has is from the Holy Spirit. This didn't help it at all. And 700 years later, the promise of that impossible sign now is coming to pass as a divine, I told you I was coming. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, The virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. 
Heaven had come to earth. God had come to man as a man. We're going to sing Chill of the Nightfall. I mean, the, 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 the choir will. One of my favorite lines, Brian and I were talking about it. Now, now that Emmanuel has come, you sing out and tell now, all shall be well now. For in a stable, Jesus is born. The Emmanuel has come. God has kept his promises. Some seven centuries earlier, the Lord promised something that to prove nothing would stop him from preserving David's line and saving his people. And the virgin birth was a divine. I told you what was happening. And he's not come to save Joseph and Mary from Rome, but from their sins, because you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Yes, yes, said Queen Lucy of Narnia. In our world, too, a stable once had something inside of it that was bigger than our whole world. He'd come to save us from our sins. We began speaking of a triptych piece of art, that three-paneled painting, and now at the very end, I want to return to that image. Maybe this is a clumsy way to end, but on the left of this triptych now, I want you to see is Ahaz, the son of David, who heard the news, and responded with unbelief. On the right side of this triptych is Joseph, also a son of David, who heard the news. And when he awoke, the text says, he went and did as the Lord commanded. But now, in a sense, you are in the middle panel of the triptych. For having heard the good news, We face the same choice that Isaiah faced and Joseph faced because we hear the same good news. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus is the virgin born son of God who came to save you from your sins. He's fully God so that he could forgive our sins and he's fully man so that he could die in the place of our sins. And here at the manger, we say with all kinds of hymns, how great thou art for at the cross, my burden gladly bearing. He bled and died to take my sin away. And we fall and we say, oh, Lord, how great thou art. If your faith does not remain firm in this Christ alone, then you will not remain secure. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it.